Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of power here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube, as well as other platforms where good podcasts are sold, I suppose. So here we are today. It is uh, Friday, the 24th of July. We're going to talk about a couple current events, but I wanted to talk in a broader framework about some things that have been on my mind over the last week or two or three or four or and so this episode, I'm going to talk about some things that have to do with um, politics a little bit, but I only from the only in using it to demonstrate some points and in fact, eat a little bit of humble pie myself, okay? And which is a phrase I kind of hate, grates on me a little bit because who wants to be wrong? Nobody. Uh, and acknowledging that, I, you know, I've been wrong about things is never fun. But, uh, or it, it's not even necessarily a matter of being right and wrong, though. That's not really the, the direction or framing that I really want to give this whole conversation. Because I'm not trying to say, I was a sinner and I have come to my senses now, because I've already done that. You know, I already went down that path of Scientology. How many times, right? How many times do we get to get away with saying that? Well, probably the thousands of times that it really happens to us in our lives. If we're really being honest, we change our minds and affiliations and loyalties thousands of times in our lives. We, you know, gain and lose friendships. We join groups and leave groups. We, we change party affiliations. We, you know, we, we change sports teams. I mean, this happens as a, as a common, you know, sort of thing where we comment on it often on this channel and where I've put a lot of my time and attention is on the extreme end of this, of this belief spectrum that we can all, that we all engage in. We all have lots and lots of beliefs and lots and lots of spectrums that we exist on. And, um, and I think about this stuff a lot. I read about it and I educate and I talk about this stuff and I've, and I interview people about it because I find it fascinating as a topic. I find you know, the way we act and the way we think and what motivates us to be fascinating topics to me. And clearly to you guys too, because you keep joining me for the ride. So this week, what I wanted to do was bounce some ideas off someone who I trust and who I like and who I often do this with in private. And I invited him onto my podcast because I thought we might have a productive conversation about some things I've been thinking about lately. And so uh, Mark, welcome to my show. This is Mark Turry. He is a Canadian. He is uh, an ex-Scientologist of, a, of a, a shorter length than me, but he was involved. He was on staff. He was around in multiple places, by the way, America and Europe. And uh, he is going to college. He is doing his education. He is studying some fascinating stuff. He's gone um, down some sociological rabbit holes with me, some political rabbit holes with me, and, and we've talked about things. And and I've always found them to be productive conversations. So, Mark, again, welcome to my show. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate being here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I study history, uh, but I also take a little bit of different perspectives on history because I really like to know how and why people think certain things, and especially extreme views. And, of course, that does reflect my Scientology past. And like you, Chris, uh, and many of the people who might be listening who are ex-members, it's very interesting to figure out why did we believe in these things? Because 
you're you've been out for since 2013 that, i've been out since 2008 now. right and i'm still coming to terms with how i was how and why i believed in the stuff that hubbard said and why was I so dedicated into and so extreme in my belief as well and willing to, you know, defend it, die for it, this kind of stuff, I think is just a fascinating issue. And in history, we do see a lot of this, of course, in, in, in political realm. And uh, it's always fascinated me since I've loved Scientology. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of deep stuff. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think that common ground that you and I share and our common interest in this stuff has been the basis of, you know, our, or like I said, our rather fascinating conversations. Um, you know, it's always helpful to, you know, as, as I'm sure you guys out in the audience know, you know, it's always a more productive thing to bounce ideas off somebody else, get some feedback. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. Think about it this way. Look at this, look at that, you know, and see where the strengths and weaknesses of what you're thinking are. And I thought whether than just sitting here and expounding on my ideas, I wanted to to talk to somebody about them. So that's why we're doing this today. And what I'm going to talk about or what I want to get into is bubble worlds, objective reality, right? Uh, extremist thinking or partisan thinking. Um, you know, again, these are spectrums, right? Um, you know, we gradually step into a belief system and, um, and this happens to all of us all the time. You know, when we come out of destructive cults, we come to a realization and it's a slow burn usually it's you know it, there's an immediate like devastating blow and then there's this sort of slow burn of realizing you've been part of something that's not what you thought it was it not as it represented itself to be and this is true for every single destructive cult for sure where we get into drawing lines with less extremist groups or the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or something. And I always use those as this sort of vanilla example of a group. I, I know there are abuses in these groups too. It's really, you can't really get out of a group. <laughs> can't really consider any group without somebody having something to say about it. But I'm, I'm trying to give these examples of these more vanilla groups to show that not just because you, you know, claim loyalty or adherence to something doesn't mean you're an extremist or doesn't mean that you've gone, you know, into a dangerous mindset. We, we by our nature, must involve ourselves in social groups and, and, and put ourselves into social hierarchies. We have no choice in the matter. As uh, Simon and Garfunkel said, no man's an island, right? Very true. Yeah, so, um, so we have to deal with this quote-unquote problem or fact of life, maybe is a better way of putting it, that groups are something we're involved in and we can lose ourselves in these groups. And that's where I, that's some of what I wanted to talk about here today is, you know, cultic thinking or cultic extremist mindsets or high control groups are, are dedicated to putting you into that frame of mind are getting you are, are into an, an extremist frame of mind. And so I thought, okay, let's, let's, let me model this a little bit, and then we can talk about it. And what I, how I'm sort of thinking about bubble worlds today is I'm, I'm thinking about objective reality, okay? All right, you are sitting on a couch right now. I'm sitting in a chair here. These are pretty indisputable facts, right? I mean, you can't see the chair. I could show it to you. You can see the couch you're sitting on. Yep. Um, 
you know, we can acknowledge that that's true and not have a whole lot of debate or argument about it. I mean, I suppose for an intellectual exercise, we could, but really, you know, for all intents and purposes, let's be, let's be practical here. Let's be, let's not be stupid or ivory tower or go off into, you know, debate 101 class, you know, should babies be killed? You know, these kind of silly <laughs> questions, you know, that, that get debated. Um, it, it's pretty clear you're sitting on a couch and, and within un, anyone's understanding of that fact. Mm-hmm. Yet, you can get into a mindset where that agreed upon objective reality that, that pretty much anybody could look at and say, yeah, that's, that's the truth or that's, that's a re- an accurate reflection of what is visible to all of us. Um, you can get into a frame of mind where, where those things aren't true, where objective reality suddenly isn't the thing that you're using as a basis or guideline or judge for you know, the truth of something. Mm-hmm. And it's like there is this line that gets crossed, you know, and I, the way I was sort of framing it or thinking about it was we, we get involved in groups based on commonality of agreement. Mm-hmm. You yeah. agree, I agree on, you know, X. We're both X scientologists Yeah. So we have a commonality right there. We That's can right. form a group based solely on that. In fact, the X scientology community has. Mm-hmm. And I've actually talked at length and, and probably will in the future about how these communities can be fractured, divisive, difficult, mm. because you have lots of other opinions being entered into it. We see this also in the atheist world, where yeah. the thing that's common between everybody is a lack of a belief in something, yeah. a, in a God figure or gods. And that's it. That's it. That's all they have in common. Right. And then they try to find other common ground and sometimes do and sometimes don't. And so you have these factions within the atheist community of, you know, progressive liberal mindset, you have more conservative mindsets, That's right. you have people who don't give a shit one way or the other, they just want to live their life and move on. And they don't care about talking about activism issues or progressive politics or conservative politics. They don't care who the president is, they just want to get on with their life. And, and, and depending on which group you're in or which faction you're part of will depend on how you make value judgments about, those, about all of those people. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so, um, so you can have groups within groups too, of course. But I don't want to ma- I'm not trying to get this all Russian doll with this. I'm just trying to show that there's a difference between having, um, you know, being part of a group that has this commonality or this common core of belief, which is why we all are part of these groups. Um, And the way they start looking at the world is through a lens of those agreements, those ideas, those what you might call core beliefs, or deeply held beliefs, right? Um, I deeply hold as a belief that Scientology is bad, Mm -hmm. that it's wrong, that it's destructive. I have made my case over and over again about that. You and I have talked about that, and I believe that you and I are on the same page on that. Would that be an accurate statement? Absolutely, yeah. What I went through, what you went through, there's, what, 2,200 ex-members on a website that says that we've spoken out, we've done interviews, 2,200 people, 
and 2,200 people have come, you're right, maybe to the same conclusion that their experiences in Scientology were mostly negative, even if there were some minor po uh, positives, it was overshadowed by the negatives. And after balancing between the two of those things, uh, the 20, you know, 2,200 ex-members have come out on the other side and said, that this was a mostly negative experience. And a lot of that has to do more with, as you've made a distinction, Chris, between the actions of Scientologists rather than their beliefs, because many beliefs can be benign, sure. Many beliefs can also be destructive. I'm not gonna say that they can't, but in this case, the focusing on the actions has been more important. And I think it's a, it's a better thing to go for because we can argue about destructive and constructive beliefs until the cows come home, but there's a lot more objective um, and objectivity in people's actions, because we can determine how people are living their lives and what they're doing. We can see clear results. Um, we can Very see true. clear ends. It's a little bit more yeah. muffled when it gets to beliefs. That's right. That's and that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of making our judgments or making our case for uh, Scientology being a destructive cult, we can right. point to the actions and we can say, "See, they did this, and they did this, and they did yep. this." Very visible. Here's the evidence of it. We don't, we're not, the argument that we're making is not Scientology's bad because of a Xenu narrative or because, exactly. or, or because Hubbard thought it was a great idea to have, um, you know, children servicing him 24 yeah. seven. I mean, that's a, that's a belief Hubbard had, which I don't happen to share, right? Agreed. He happened to think these little Commodore's messengers were as good as adults. We don't think that, right? Yeah. And, and we've so broken with that you know, set of beliefs and ideas that we now speak against it in a public way. Absolutely. Um, the basis of that is the is the actions, but we also have to speak to the beliefs that motivate or drive those actions. It's true. They're, so, they're, 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 they're one and the other. Like, it is true that beliefs have consequences. It is also true that actions have consequences. Yep. All I think you and I are saying is if we're focusing on the actions, we can focus on things like fraud. We can, we can focus on things like homophobia. We can focus on abuses, physical abuses, mental, emotional abuses. Those things can be documented. The thing is with our beliefs, at some point they start in our head and anything that kind of starts in our head, other than trying to look at what electrical pulses are fusing in our brain, um, we can't really determine whether or not that's good or bad, but we can determine whether or not something like defrauding someone by, you know, getting them to the registrar's office and having them, you know, apply for credit cards that have 40% interest that you just max out to buy the HQS course or whatever it is, that is objectively bad. I can't necessarily say that Xenu is as objectively bad because I don't know what synapses are firing in your brain. It's, a, it's not exactly an easy thing. And, you know, just believing in Xenu on its own, it may cause someone to commit fraud, but it may not. There, there's equal opportunity in that, whereas fraud is fraud, and fraud has a negative consequence, which we have defined in our society. So again, this is why I just think that there's too much on the belief, too, too much ambiguity on the belief. It's a little bit more set in stone when it comes to actions. Just my well, opinion, but- you know. No, very, I, I, of course I agree with you completely on this. Um, as the basis of valid criticism or valid yeah. critical thinking on the topic, and we'll get more to that as if we if we keep following my little logic train here. Um, but where I want to go first is the basis of having a group in the first place is a commonality of agreement and belief. 
Yep. And the deeper you can make those beliefs, the stronger you can reinforce a belief system, mm-hmm. the more dedication, the more loyalty, the more um, intent a person will be in not only forwarding or, or acting on that belief set, but the more dedicated they will become to trying to convert others to their belief set too. If they're, you know, a, a, an average extroverted kind of person, obviously, mm-hmm. again, there's spectrums here, right? There's all kinds of factors. We are, you know, these broad statements are always so hard to make. Hubbard loved them. And, oh, yeah. and maybe I follow in his footsteps a little bit with some of the things that I say, but I try to measure it against all the factors that exist. And and so you constantly see me making conditionals and, and drawing back on stuff. And also, yeah. I've come to learn I'm fairly contrarian by nature. Yeah, and I find I have one criticism that people have with me is I sometimes contradict myself. But, you know, how I like to present arguments is by giving more than one side. So, yeah, I'm going to contradict myself. Everybody does. It's not like I do find that this is really the thing in, in the uh, the secular community where there's a lot of really uber rationalists who think that you just can't contradict yourself when that's not that's not a thing. Like everybody contradicts themselves. I can say to you, I could give you an argument why Scientology is good and then completely contradict myself by stating why it's bad. And both of those things can be true at the same time. It's just nuance. And yes, we have to contradict ourselves because I'm giving you two different opinions or maybe even a third opinion that is in between those two. And what I'm hoping is with those more than one opinion that somewhere between all of those different perspectives, there will be the truth, which I believe that there is truth. I'm not someone that doesn't believe that there is. I just believe that there are multiple sources to that. We have to take each individual subject and we have to sort of look at it, rationalize it, and then figure out which is the most uh, most falsifiable as far as the evidence is concerned and then go with it. And so, yeah, so sometimes it's going to contradict each other, but you know, it's not a big deal to contradict yourself. We do it every day and it's all right. Nobody's perfect, you know? Well, exactly. And in fact, taking that one step further, in fact, because you're actually getting um, exactly where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and what I want to talk about are some of the barriers to that, but what, yeah. but I'll actually add to what you said by saying not by, you say or position it as I'm contradicting myself. I don't look at it that way. If mm. both things are true, then what you're doing is you're giving yourself the freedom to have a well-rounded and complete look at a thing. Yeah. And, and that is the freedom of thought that critical thinking is trying to achieve. And that's where I'm, you know, if, if, if I have a goal here with, with teaching or talking about critical thinking, with learning critical thinking, thinking about this, it is, it is that freedom of mind or freedom of thought to be able to contemplate that there is good and bad in the same thing, that we don't yeah. have to have the rush to judgment that it's all good or it's all bad based on this or based on this alone when both things can be true. But there are massive major barriers to being able to accomplish that kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. One of the, and, and I want to go into that a little bit because there's a, there's the, when I mentioned before about, okay, if you imagine the groups that we're all part of being sort of bubbles, or again, these, you know, I love the Venn diagram analogy of, you know, the, you got the oval and sometimes they interact with other ovals and cross and this sort of thing. And you can put a model together of all the groups you're part of and, 
intersect them in various ways to show, you know, your personality or show your belief system or, or, you know, what, what's important to you, what your priorities would be. There's lots of ways you can model this stuff. But if we imagine any group we're part of, that we are somewhere on a spectrum of belief with that group or a, a spectrum of, of acceptance about what that group represents the belief set that that group represents, you know, the Boy Scouts, uh, trustworthy, uh, honest, brave, thrifty, kind, courteous, yep. you know, all the, 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 the characteristics of a Boy Scout, right? Um, and the, you know, the, the rugged individualism combined with the teamwork mm -hmm. aspect of life as, as a Boy Scout, right? You are expected to work with the troop. And, you know, these kind of things, these are value sets that we go into in, in, in becoming a Boy Scout. And these are, these are generally good things, meaning they assist our survival in every group we're part of, in every situation we are part of. It helps you to be kind, trustworthy, courteous, you know, et cetera. It actually, these are, these are life personality characteristics that are very beneficial to have. Mm -hmm. um, being able to work in a team is a good thing. Being able to work as an individual is a good thing. And if you're raised in a group where these values are being, you know, forwarded and taught, uh, then, you know, through example and through behavior and through practice, then I think you've got a constructive group on your hands. And that's why, you know, the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, whatever, you know, again, I'm just using these as vanilla examples. Sure. I, please, you know, don't take it as any more significant than that, right? We don't have yeah, to no, no group is perfect yeah. about all the pedophiles and the Boy Scouts. Right. Not the point. Okay. Right. <laughs> so yeah. point is, uh, you know, there's a group of that that's basically got something most people could agree with, right? Mm -hmm. Scientology does not. Okay, now we go to another group, like right? Scientology, right? Where there's a group of beliefs that are a little weird. And there's a group of practices that are a little destructive. And there's a set, uh, there's a core set of principles and values that are ultimately destructive to your sanity, your psychology, right? Your ability to navigate life. And at the, at the edges of the Scientology bubble, when you first get in, or if you stay at the periphery, you never go deeper, Scientology will never be those things to you, those destructive things, because you won't experience that part of it. That's correct. Right? But if you go, but there's a point and I'm not sure where this point is. Maybe mm -hmm. it's different from group to group to group, but there is a point where you're buying in and you're buying in and you're buying in, meaning you're attending meetings or you're reading the books or you're listening to the lectures or you're going to the scout meetings or you're attending the political rallies or you're playing the soccer game with the sports team or you're going to the karate dojo or you know, you're attending the cooking classes and you're really kind of digging it now and you're getting deeper and deeper in and it becomes a committed activity for you. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right? It becomes something you now label yourself as. And at that point, it has become what you consider a part of you. Yeah. This is part of who you are. Now, I don't pretend to understand all the psychology behind why we do that, mm -hmm. but it's pretty empirically obvious we do. Uh, we take it to the extreme of identity politics or identity yeah. fill-in-the-blank, where 
that's all that matters to us, right? We've made it so much part of us that this is this this political idea, for example, is who you are politically whenever you think about politics or electing people or legislator or legislative activities or governance, you think in terms of this identity, right? Mm -hmm. That's a kind of extreme. And I'm not even talking about any single identity. It could be any of them. And it exists both the left and the right. You have evangelicals, very, very hardcore identity politics centered around evangelical ideas. You have social left-wing progressive politics that Mm -hmm. have, you know, hardcore identity political um, identifications. Uh, We all know what all those are, right? We don't have to to go into defining that too much more, except where I'm going with this is this business of this flip that occurs is not, I'm not not giving a value judgment to this yet. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing that we identify as an atheist, an ex-scientologist, a Scientologist, a karate guy, a, you know, a, a patriot, or this or that, whatever. Mm-hmm. Point I'm trying to make is we are, we are going deeper in to this bubble of people who have this common agreement on this matter and this, this group. And the bubble is formed from sort of the collective view of all the people in the group and what they agree is true and is important. Yep. Does that does that all make sense so far? When I when I was when you were talking, I flashed got, got a little flashback to when I and I don't know 100% of, you know, I this would be very hard to objectively prove, but I do remember the first time I read KSW1 Keeping Scientology and, working, the policy letter in Scientology. And I remember that my experience of Scientology had changed after that. Now, day to day, nothing changed. I was still, I was on staff at the time. I was still doing, you know, everything that I was supposed to. I was going on post. I was working a full, full-time schedule. So for people who don't know, those are 11 to 14 hour work days, seven days a week. So I was working 90 plus hours a week for, for, not, for class five org, not a C org org because I was never in the C org. But I do remember reading KSW1 and at least this idea that what I was doing was more serious and more important than anything else in the world became extremely apparent. And the catch here, Chris, as you know, nobody reads KSW on the first day. I had been a Scientologist for two years before I read Keeping Scientology Working, I can imagine that there are publics that have never read it and who have been in the church for a lot longer than two years. One of the reasons is, and again, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that, but again, because uh, eventually I think you have to read it right when you get to the academy. So well, perhaps yeah, maybe, yeah. You're on a major service, you're reading. Ex- okay. So, so then, yeah. so at, at a certain point of time, people will read it. But for me, it was two years. So then I remember at that point, the way that you start to think will change because it is impactful regardless. And so this is almost like when somebody says, you know, I read this book that changed my life. And then you read the book and it doesn't change your life. I'm always interested in that too. Like, what is it about something where one person can say this book changed my life and another person could read it and say this is this is farce well, and i think i think what it is as you say it's a it is a mentality for sure mm-hmm, for sure and in fact you're actually talking to somebody who read ksw on day one okay all right 
but okay. I, was, I was absolutely an outlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did not have that total change on day yeah. one because it was day one. Yeah. I'd come in, I had signed up for, I'd, I'd been done that as everybody, you know, as I've said many times, I did the personality test, I got sold on communication, and I got sold on doing the high level professional TRs course, mm -hmm. which in Scientology jargon is, is a professional level course for the people who are going to be doing the Scientology auditing or counseling on people. Yeah. And this is where you do hours and hours and hours of sitting in a chair, just staring at somebody until you can do it comfortably for two straight hours. Mm -hmm. From And it's timed. They, they actually have a timer. And, and if you mess up or you blink too much or you fall out of your chair or you just can't take it anymore, they hit it. It's back to zero, you know, right. and you got to start again. And I did that for weeks on that course. And I was, a, I was, as far as a Scientologist goes, I'd been raised with Scientology. I knew some of the jargon and the principles, but this was the first major service I'd ever done. And, and, it, and I got thrown in the deep end. So mm -hmm. I read it, I got checked out on it. And I thought, wow, this is a little strong. <laughs> you know, I was 15 years old, right? Yeah. And I'm reading L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard writing, um, you know, the, 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 um, what not only what you do here and now with an in Scientology is like more important than anything that's else, else that's going on on the planet. Uh -huh. um, you know, the, the future of every man, woman and child and your future and endless future and endless trillania of futures depend on Scientology surviving and succeeding. And if you mess up Scientology, you're for it and don't you dare alter it. And sure. Everybody who ever did is, you know, is in the graveyard now. And I mean, just just seven pages of massive indoctrination on Absolutely. the importance of Scientology. So, so that, you know, so even that getting hit with that on day one didn't really move me from the periphery deep into the core of Scientology yet, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I hadn't yet had an auditing session. I hadn't yeah. yet done the TRs. I hadn't yet done the things that you have to actually do. It's not just education that makes a hardcore Scientologist. It is yeah. the subjective experiences of living a Scientology experience and then crediting the gains that you have to L. Ron Hubbard and to Scientology. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to the mindset because once you can do that, then you're moving down the bubble. Then you're moving deeper into that into that world. Mm -hmm. And through the course of that class that I took, and then the next two classes that I took, where I did start getting some auditing, and I did audit other people, and I started thinking with Scientology's wording and language and, and examples of it and stuff, that whole summer I was deep in. And so I did go deeper into the bubble world as a result of you know, of the time and, 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 and uh, effort that I put into it. And I think that that's true across the spectrum here. Again, a, a soccer club, you know, on day one, you're not, ah, everybody, we must, you know, we must win this year or, you know, my life will be ruined. I mean, if somebody came in on day one saying that, you'd be like, dude, what's, what's up with you, right? Like, that's weird. Yeah. It's just you soccer, know? bro. Yeah, right? <laughs> But if you're part of the team and then you get 
you start getting good, you start really wanting to make something happen, you get you start investing yourself in the team. And like I said, there's that point, there's that line that gets crossed where now you are a fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. That's not the danger zone. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just making the point that there's a marker where that happens. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, the, the reason why I think it's an important point is because that's when the values of the group, as you perceive them, as you understand them, become your values. It, it starts going both ways. You're contributing to the group, but now the group is, is contributing to you. It's changing you. Mm-hmm. You're changing the group, but it's changing you too, right? And, and really, the ideal member is somebody who comes in and is totally changed and conforms with what the group wants and doesn't change the group too much, right. you know, unless they're you know, somehow making it even more what it already is, then everybody will agree with that. If they, but if you go in and you start saying, well, I don't know about this blue trim on these walls, <laughs> you know, and everybody's like, no, the blue trim is what makes it so great, you know, then right. you might start having some trouble, right? So the, the, this, this, um, the, the, where I'm trying to go with this is this identity thing is, is kind of important because because what then ends up happening is the value set, the belief set, the, the, the idea set of the group starts becoming your idea set, starts becoming your belief set, and you start taking this in. And, and if we can imagine, it's not this way at all, but if we were to imagine the brain as like, you know, this collection of concentric circles of belief and mm-hmm. these core values are sinking deeper and deeper in and deeper and deeper down into your you know, nether regions, right? Um, <laughs> uh, then um, what ends up happening, and this was the observation I made that led to this whole conversation and, and got me thinking on this. What ends up happening is that the reality of the bubble world, the agreements, the beliefs, the ideas of how things are, starts to become different. Mm-hmm from the objective reality outside the bubble world. The agreements we have, you start framing what you see around you through a lens. Mm -hmm. When you were outside the group, you were able to see things a little differently, right? That's right. A stupid example to prove the point, we agree you're sitting on a couch. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say you join some group of couch haters Right. Right. I, a stupid example, but it, it's just making a point. And you start agreeing with the idea that couches suck. Mm-hmm. Couches are bad for your back. Couches hurt your health. Right. Couches are uh, for slackers. Couch. I mean, there's so many mantras you could come up with for the couch haters of America. Right. You could, you know, there's the, you, you could invent this group and you could come up with a whole belief set connected to it. And you could go buy into this belief set by first agreeing perhaps that couches, you know, sometimes you feel a little uncomfortable when you get up from a couch and you got to stretch, you got to do all this stuff. And you go, yeah, that's a little annoying. And then they start going, well, you know what else about couches? And then they start telling you a little bit more and a little bit more. And then you're like, really? I didn't know that. And Adolf Hitler the- sat on a couch. Right, exactly. <laughs> and he- you don't like Adolf Hitler, do you? He was a couch sitter. Exactly. All yeah. authoritarians have used couches. Of course. You know, I mean, yeah, the Holocaust began on a sofa. Right. 
So yeah, there you go. You start buying into, but it's a, like we've talked about many times, it's a gradual process. The point yes. is that once you start framing everything through the lens that couches are bad, mm-hmm. now you aren't, now when I see you, when I perceive you sitting on a couch, I don't see you sitting on a couch. I see yeah. you sitting on a death machine. Yeah, exactly. Right? And I am actually, now, now you could call that an opinion. Mm-hmm. I have an opinion about couches, but it's stronger than that. When it becomes a deeply held belief, it's not just an opinion. An opinion, let's just say for sake of argument here, for the sake of this talk that we're having, that an opinion is easily changeable. That an opinion is something open to debate. That an opinion is something you could work with. Subjective in some sense, right? Well, of course. Opinions yeah. are obviously subjective, and they are. But we'll say that there's sort of a lighter grade level of belief versus mm-hmm. the kind of deeply held belief that I'm talking about that people yeah. buy into. Opinions, for the sake of this conversation, are not identified with the person themselves. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. There are ideas about things that are not core to the person. You don't, you know, if I start talking to you about your couch right now, I doubt you're going to take it personally. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, this guy, this couch guy, the Couch Haters of America guy, right. is going to look at that couch and think, and he's going to see a death machine. Mm-hmm. And he's going to say, hey, that's like literally his perception of this picture is now different, radically different. Because he also feels compelled to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't know the history of the sofa, I do. Exactly. You don't, yeah. know, you don't know the real history of couches, but yeah. I do. Did you know that? Yeah. And then you can get into this nonsense. Like, That's right. Yeah. Like just as exactly the same where I think, I think you're hitting it on there, Chris. I think, I think what it is, it's a mixture between at some level, a little bit of indoctrination, but at some level, a little bit of isolation. And it's this odd kind of double eye thing going on, you know, um, where you have isolation and then you have like this idea of integration where you're becoming more adapt to these different ideas. And especially if they are somewhat contrarian, they're ideas that you have to sort of unlearn what you've learned at school or you have to unlearn what your parents have taught. And there's something really satisfying when someone comes to you and says, hey, do you know that, you know, the whole world is run by a group of 12 Jews who live in a castle in Switzerland. They're called the, you know, Bilderbergs or the Rothstein's. Like, it, it, there is something that we know, especially Chris as being ex-Scientologist about secrets and esotericism that we really love as human beings. Now, some people are more apt to it than other people. Some people will, will hear a secret and think, ah, you know, that's just nonsense. But there's a way that people can deliver information that makes us innately curious and very, very passionate. And I think once that happens, like you're absolutely correct, once we accept it as a part of our identity, then we got to look for other people who also use that identity. And depending on how many people in your state, province, city, area are in, involved in that idea may also determine how uh, dedicated you are. So for example, if you belong to, if you like in my area, there's a lot of Roman Catholics, but if I'm not a Roman Catholic, if I go to another church, even if it's a small church, 
they're probably very, very dedicated because in the sea of religion, they might be the only church. Everyone else is a Roman Catholic. Same happens, I think, when people go from religion to non-religion, is they seek to have friends who are non-religious. And there aren't, like outside of major urban centers, there aren't a lot of, I can imagine in rural areas, suburban areas, there's probably more people that are religious. So the dedication automatically becomes more zealous, for lack of a better term, than other affiliations, simply because there is that idea, like in Scientology, of what's called the siege mentality. There's this idea, we are a small group of people we're in this tiny bubble and all of these other people who we make up, whether it's atheists, whether it's secular humanists, whether it's evangelicals, doesn't matter who it is, this idea that they are after us, they are trying to infiltrate us. They, it, it, there must, I mean, there are evolutionary explanations and there are neurochemical explanations for this, but there's also a lot of other stuff there's sociological experiments that have happened with this. I don't think anybody knows for sure, and this is why I want to move, like, I'm not saying you're doing this, but move away from the one, the fact that one subject has one answer. It's not. It's a whole bunch of different things. But I do think that there is something innately human, because I think as we developed as human beings, there were times when not just homo sapiens, but the homo sapiens who looked like us, who believed in the same thing like us, they were in a complete minority compared to the others. And the others, even if they don't necessarily care about you, even if they're willing to leave you alone, there's still something in people where we kind of make up the, the enemy. You know, this is why we have Satan. This is why we have a lot of these evil, demonic kind of things. It gives people something to rally behind, and it gives people that sense of other that there's someone or something that is trying to suppress us. And for whatever reason, it makes us more and more, again, zealous, for lack of a better word, you know, better word. It makes us more enthusiastic and more together. It actually brings us closer when we feel whether or not it's true, can be true, of course. But even if it isn't true, we still come together under adversity. And I don't know if there's any magical way that we can think our way out of it, but I think being more aware of it and being more aware when we are getting so deep into a group and so deep into a mentality that we form a very extreme echo chamber, that to me is, is the key. It's knowing what the end result of all of these things are happening so you can backtrack and kind of prevent yourself from getting too far involved. Because in the end, by the way, in the end, by the way, the government is not going to step in and tell people, don't join Scientology, don't be a Republican, don't be a Democrat, don't go to this church, don't be an atheist. They're not going to do that for you. We're adults. We have to make these decisions ourselves now. And that's the maybe the unfortunate part to some for some people, but it's also what makes us free because we have the ability to speak freely and associate. And I wouldn't want the government telling me what church I should go to or shouldn't go to, whether I should be religious or shouldn't be religious. It's not, that's, that's not it. So I have to make those decisions. And that's where I'm saying we need to empower ourselves. So if we're getting too close to that, that thing, we should be able to at least back up a little bit. And that's, I think, part of what you're doing as well. Um, in, in, in the things that you've been doing for the past seven years is know when to get to that point, know what that point is, and then bring yourself back a little bit. Well, that's, that's exactly the point. And yeah. 
And the things you started describing there, you know, as far as um, the way that um, groups of all kinds of flavors and sizes and shapes, um, it's really the size of the group isn't really super important. It's the mechanics of the group and what it's doing. And, And when we talk about black and white thinking, us versus them thinking in, you know, mantras, chants, you know, leader must be revered, sacred knowledge or sacred lore, hidden truths, you know, things like this. These are all on our cult checklist mm-hmm. because they are tools of manipulation that are used to draw the person in and accept these beliefs, this belief set as a deeply held belief. That's what it's trying to do. And mm-hmm. through, again, isolation is absolutely um, a way of accomplishing that because um, it focuses the ten- person's attention much more on just the group and the group's values and ideas. Uh, it has the person actively working in the group, identifying with the group, being part of the group, uh, socially connecting with the group, eschewing non-group connections, ignoring, um, not paying attention to family, friends, etc., who aren't part of the group. These are all the red flags that we use to go, ah, 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 something's wrong, something's going on there. Mm-hmm. On an individual level, though, there are decisions that are made. And yes. um, there is phenomena that occurs, and which, is, which we've been talking about, this business of being slowly drawn in, going from the periphery deeper in. But you, those, are, those are things that are also decision points for a person for the most part, okay? Now, yes, I'm not yeah. talking about second-gen members or mm-hmm. members of, let's say, a country. Yep. You didn't ask to be born in America or Canada sure. in your case or whatever. We, we didn't ask for that. That's right. So some groups were part of that we didn't join. We didn't That's go right. in and say, hey, let's be part of this. And a lot of the injustices and, and social issues and problems that we fight right now are actually an expression of, hey, I didn't actually sign up for this. And that's a whole thing, but that's not what I'm talking about today. That is a thing. And that it deserves its own show, really, in terms of like, you know, non-voluntary commitment to a group or its values or ideals would be, an, you know, patriotism would be a thing there, right? Yeah, nationalism is a big one, too. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's yeah. a few different things you can be part of that, you know, your family. That's not mm-hmm. a group you ever had any choice in being part of. It's just the way it is. You don't get to choose it and you don't get to do a damn thing about it. Your family is your family, right? Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about today is not that. Yeah. It's, it's the groups you do choose to be part of. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and um, this identity thing, right? All those tools of manipulation that groups of varying sizes and shapes and flavors use. And sometimes within a group to make it a little more complicated. Like we mentioned, you know, you have factions within the group. The group has its own spectrum of belief and people are at different points on it. And there are different value sets within the value set of the group that all fit the group's basic composure or construction or constitution. But, um, not everybody has to buy in necessarily on every single little part. There are core things they have to buy in on. Mm-hmm. In Scientology, you have to buy in on your the fact that you are a Thetan. Yeah. You will not last as a Scientologist if you do not believe that you are a spiritual entity. 
exactly that, right it's just a yeah. it, it, you, you, auditing just wouldn't really work for very long mm-hmm. if you didn't buy into that eventually you don't have to buy into it on day one that's right but you do have to buy into it to get to, to be a high level scientologist and also um, to stop stop meditating stop doing yoga certain exactly. prescriptions yeah yeah. Exactly. There's a whole set of aspirin to yeah. into. And, and in fact, another way of framing cults or destructive cults are, you know, you have to buy into a belief set that is truly harmful to you. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's physically harmful to you, demonstrably psychologically harmful to you, absolutely. harmful to society at large. That's why we call them destructive cults. Mm-hmm. Um, but every group has flavors of this. And um, and what I find fascinating about this, one of the phenomena of this that, I, that, that people will miss and is so important is, um, is, the, is the critical thinking aspect of this where I've said before that, you know, uh, so I'm really kind of thinking this through a little more deeply, is that the more you buy into an extremist belief set, the deeper you go into the bubble world, so to speak, the less critically you get to think about that topic, yes, that subject. You can be a brilliant critical thinker, brilliant yeah. scientist, mathematician, you know, astrophysicist, what, medical doctor. What, it doesn't matter. You can be beautifully, wonderfully proficient at those things and think very critically on that topic. But then when it comes to your religion, yeah. your politics, <laughs> yeah your sports mm-hmm. right i bring these up because these are the big ones that people go all in on right. and when they go all in what ends up happening is their ability to critically think about that subject that they are going all in on becomes you know it becomes less and less and less until it's literally at the extreme extreme ends there is zero critical thinking it's completely black and white. You just buy into every single thing that the, that the group or the party or the leadership says, and you accept it as truth. Your, your, your ability to discern objective reality has completely disappeared because mm-hmm. it's substituted by the reality of the group or bubble world that you are in. That's right, yeah. Now, the other important, important part about this is that all of us, have done this to some degree or another in every single group we're part of that we identify ourselves with. Absolutely. This flip occurs. I, you know, I don't have better language. I'm not a psych major, right? I'm not a SOS <laughs> major. I, I, and I'm sure a lot of what I'm saying is, psych, is sociology 101 stuff too. Some of it is, yeah, and social psychology, of course. Yeah, yeah and social, that's right. So I know I'm not, I, I, I realize that I'm reinventing the wheel and saying some mm-hmm. of this stuff, that this is not new thinking particularly, but for me it is. And I thought, I'd, you know, I thought it was worth taking the time to share with my viewers because, of course, I'm coming at this from the cult angle all the time. And, the, and the, the thing that disturbs me about what I see with people who go into these bubble worlds, or all of us, mm-hmm. to one degree or another, is that when we do that, we start telling what could be called lies. Mm-hmm. We start talking about objective reality in a different way. That's right. Your death couch, for example, your death machine that you're sitting on. It's a couch. Yeah. It's not a death machine. It's a couch, right? But I don't see it that way anymore. And this is the point. 
it's not a matter of whether it to me in my and to my group of people who are in the couch haters of America, we don't see couches anymore. We see death machines. We actually correct our view of reality mm-hmm. to fit our belief set rather than correct our belief set to fit with reality. That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and we've harped on this. We know this is, this is true, but I wanted to present it from this angle of, of, you know, correcting reality. I think this is an important way to put this. I like, I kind of like this terminology or this phrasing. Um, well, so I was wondering, because if I could give two examples from my past, if please, that's all right. Please. So you know that for about seven years, I was very involved in the libertarian movement. And when I mean libertarian, I don't mean left, I mean right. Because there is there, you know, just saying the word libertarian, there is a spectrum. But I happen to be more on the libertarian party, which is more on the right. And there's two phrases that I used to believe. And I'm going to be completely forthcoming on this. I don't believe in this today. But yes, I once did. And it was a mistake. Number one, I used to believe that voting was aggression. And number two, I used to believe that taxation was theft. Now, the average person does not believe this. Voting is not an act of aggression and taxation is not theft, okay? Those things, in my opinion, are objective and they can be easily demonstrably proven, okay? Without taxation, we don't have any way Um, because there hasn't been a better solution than progressive income tax. Yes, there are fair taxes, there are flat taxes, I understand, but nothing has actually been objectively proven to be better than taking a certain percentage of someone's income, redistributing that wealth into social programs that keep us afloat as human beings. Now, whether or not I love the fact that I'm paying taxes or not is a completely different issue. But you know what? It's the only thing that we've had in the past, what, 70 years, that has uh, more than that, 100 years that has done that. The other thing is when you go to the voting booth, voting is not, you know, is a right that people have fought and died for because, especially from my background, coming from places where my grandparents and great-grandparents came from, they came from the Ottoman Empire, they came from, uh, and they also came from like communist countries where if you had to vote, there was one name on the ballot. So this idea that I, as someone who knows and understands the importance of democracy and taxes, would then all of a sudden start believing in these, you know, very far right anarchist libertarian, you know, kind of thing is something like anyone could say, well, how and why would anybody believe in that? And my conclusion is that I mostly self-isolated, and again, this could be an individual thing. It's completely fine. I I will say that this is a fault of of me. So my fault was I started to take seriously these um, beliefs, and then I started reading, obsessively reading books from the point of view where that was the case. And there are plenty of thinkers. I mean, you can go on to publishing houses that strictly publish libertarian thoughts. And almost all of the philosophy, the economics, everything that they're talking about comes back to the same conclusion. The state is evil, taxation is theft, voting is aggression, etc. Now, these are very bright people who are saying this, right? Milton Friedman, Mises, Hayek, we can say we don't like what they're saying, and I don't say that. I say some of the, what they what they wrote I like. Some of some of them I don't. But they were people with PhDs. 
They had a very good, um, even though some of them, like Hayek and Mises, they were uh, they were originally from Europe. They still had a good command of of the language of the English language, and it was it's very intellectual stuff. I mean, reading Human Action is a massive, massive volume. It's very intellectual, and those ideas people can simply they can convince you. So even though when something isn't true or something is objectively untrue, we know from things like you know alternative medicine people can be convinced regardless and again the point here being the, the the reason why i bring this up is because there are some beliefs on the extreme beliefs that are very contrarian i would probably hazard a guess to say most people in society disagree with taxation as theft and disagree with voting as aggression but you know the very small percentage of people who agree with that they really, really believe this. And it is um, uh, 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 brought back and it is confirmed by these intellectual books and these intellectual courses and these think tanks. And of course, think tanks are not good sources of information. They're not considered, and I didn't know that when I was reading, I thought think tanks is where it's at. They're not academic scholarly research groups. They're funded usually by private funds, which means if they're on the left or on the right, they're skewed, doesn't matter. It's not academic, they're not peer reviewed, et cetera. Again, or if they are peer reviewed, they're peer reviewed by their own people. So when we get into this idea of things like echo chambers, things like confirmation bias, um, uh, cognitive dissonance, these are all things that layer on top of how we believe. And so eventually we are gonna run into those things. And so for, for my, my sort of point on this, Chris, just being, any individual, you, me, we've been on the extremes and we've come back, let's say to the center. And even from the center, we may switch back and forth between different beliefs. But my whole thing is let's stick, stick in this group that's sort of in this massive pendulum that's somewhere in the middle and we can swing left, we can swing right, we can go all over the place. Let's just understand that there are these extreme beliefs and there's a whole lot of work out there and there's a whole lot of writings out there that are specifically designed to make us not question those ideas and to basically just make us think in this particular way. It's designed for that. So if you grab a book by Mises and Hayek, which I, I say people should if they want to know, you got to take it with a grain of salt because they might say some things that are true, but they're going to say a lot of stuff that isn't true, particularly with what people call market fundamentalists. There are people in the world who believe the market can do everything. That's not objectively true. There's people in the world who think the state can do everything. That's not objectively true. What is objectively true? The market can do some things. The state can do some things. That's it. Well, exactly. And after that, it's yeah. your opinion. It, well, exactly. And that's okay. And where, you know, this actually, this, this is, it's okay to have different ideas about of things. Of course. It's, Certainly, and in fact, the kind of the yeah. whole point of the show here today, to please explore different ideas. Mm -hmm. Please do. But there's a recognition here of a problem that we have that I believe every single individual yeah. psychologically has, which if we're not aware of it, see, here's the thing about critical thinking. And I used to, I, I definitely used to have very different ideas about this, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, this is why we learn. And so whether we can change our ideas, grow, improve, make things, you know, more understandable. 
And on the critical thinking front, this business of, you know, the, the more extreme the mindset, the less critical thinking is going on. There's another sort of corollary or another little thing connected to this. Okay, so I've, I've sort of modeled or sort of trying to create this mental image here of this bubble world. You're, you're in this bubble, right? And the bubble is sort of floating, you know, and maybe it interacts with other bubbles in some ways or Venn diagrams across with other things. I'm sure that there are common ideas that, you know, Scientologists and conservatives have. So they cross over. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a Venn diagram there, right? Yes, and, there is, yeah. And there also is on the left too, the Scientology and, and some left-wing principles or... Yep. You know, the, the couch haters of America might cross over with Scientology in one aspect or another. So True. these are not completely isolated. But for the sake of this conversation, let's just consider one bubble yep. and say, you know, you got a guy who's in this bubble and he's diving deep into it. And, and, and the more deeper he goes, it's sort of like the bubble is sort of like I, I, I kind of have this mental picture of like a cell or something like this you know, amorphous sort of uh, gelatinous mass or something that you're the blob. diving in. Yeah, blobby thing, right, that you're going into. <laughs> but it's clear, but your view of the outside world, outside the bubble mm -hmm. is becoming distorted. Yeah. It's becoming distorted. You're not able to see objective reality as clearly when you're viewing it through this lens. And the deeper in the belief set you go, the more you identify with the belief set, the more you yeah. make it who you are, the less clear the outside world becomes to you. It's true. And so much so that I'm going to come back to this thing where when somebody outside the bubble says something to you mm -hmm. that contradicts how you are seeing things through this distorted lens, couches or death machines. That's right. The more you're seeing the world through that lens, the more you feel you have to correct reality to yeah. conform with how you are seeing the world. Mm -hmm. And it can be really frustrating when you're in a position like that to have people who are not in your bubble world argue with you, tell mm -hmm. you you're wrong, tell you you're not seeing things straight, tell you that that's not true, yeah. tell you all these things, and you then have to keep asserting this, you know, this, no, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Because the three hardest words for any human being to say are, I was wrong. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. That's just, I, I don't know why. I have no psychology behind it. I just know, you know, like Bill Maher, right? I, <laughs> I don't know why. I just know it's true, right? <laughs> so, well, yeah. I think uh, that happens that. too. And I, yeah. I just want to. I just want to make this finish making this point because I want to. This is the next kind of step in the logic train here, mm -hmm. and it's it's a really important one, right? Because if we've bought into so far what I'm saying, that bubble worlds exist, that you go into bubble worlds, that you give over your identity to bubble worlds, and that your perceptions are skewed as a result, and I think all of these things are true, no matter what bubble we're talking about, then. And you then feel you're having to correct reality to conform with your belief set, your perceptions, because perceptions are what you expect them to be, right? Like we've mm -hmm. talked about, your, your brain ain't uh, a mirror of objective reality. Your brain is a mirror of what you expect to see and, ex and experience. And it's, and it's the rude awakenings that, that, that wake us up sometimes 
because sometimes perception can't be denied. But it's a little surprising how far down these rabbit holes we can go and how far we can skew reality and our perception to conform with our bubble system, bubble world belief. So the point here, though, that I'm trying to get to is that there's a certain point, and it's not the same point where you identify with the group. It's deeper. Mm -hmm. But there does come a point, and I don't care what the group is. I don't care what the value set is. Not important. It's the psychology I'm talking about right now. There's a point where you become unable to view objective reality anymore for what it is. You're so deep in, you can't see it anymore. It, ever, all the light rays are being bent and twisted around by the gel, the, the, you know, there's this, again, this blob that you're in, where you just can't see it anymore. Or it's like the ocean and you go down deep enough, there's no more light. That's right. It's just dark. Yeah. There's nothing, and, and life can exist down there. <laughs> I mean, actually, my ocean example is probably a better example, yeah. better analogy, right? Because life can still exist at the bottom, man. It goes down deep, way deeper than you imagine. And yet you can still exist down there. But your view of the world, what you think the world is, is a very different world than the people who are living up on the surface. Yeah. You know, try to have a, how, how do you have an intelligent conversation with somebody who's so far down, you know, a mile down the ocean, you're not seeing any light. How do you have an intelligent conversation with them about the sky? Well, yeah, if they've never seen it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or they've forgotten because they're yeah. so deep down now that they think this is all there is to reality. Mm -hmm. And that's what cults do to people. But actually... Any membership in any group will put you somewhere on that spectrum. But if it's only an inch into the water, it's no big deal. Nobody can, you know, hey, you're still good. You're still sane. You're still rational. Deeper you go, the worse it becomes. And here's, and, and now that I've made that point, there's two other things to this. Critical thinking really should have the goal, I think, of eschewing these bubble worlds, of not letting ourselves sink that deep into any of these bubbles. So to maintain a, 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 not, a, not, a not a non-committal, not a I'm not part of any group. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Obviously, you have to be part of groups. There's no way you can't be. Mm -hmm. Not in our modern society. There's just no way. There's no getting out of it. Yeah. So, but don't let yourself go to that point I'm talking about where you start identifying yourself with the group to such a degree that you start losing yourself. But more important, you start losing touch with the reality that exists outside that blob, outside that, you know, that bubble. Mm -hmm. Social media, as we all comment on, is bubble fighting bubble. You know, it's, it's, it's literally, you know, snapshots of people from within varying levels of these bubbles. That's right. You know, left wing, right wing is a real popular one. But you can find the couch haters of America on social media, too. I mean, all Absolutely. of them are represented. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the kicker. The reason why this is important is not just to be, become a better critical thinker. 
the reason why, if you've connected the dots already, is because if you can't see objective reality for what it is, if you've got so, if you're so deep in, you're so bent around your core beliefs or the group's core beliefs, I should say, I keep saying you, right, really right. talking about a group here mm-hmm. and, and giving yourself over to a group. If you've gone that deep down that you can't see what's going on outside the bubble world accurately, then how do you ever imagine that you're actually going to solve the problems that you are so dedicated to trying to solve by being part of this group? Yeah. It's actually a big foot bullet on all of our parts. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're shooting ourselves in the head. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we go all in to that extent, we, be, we blind ourselves. And by doing that, we end up lying, mm-hmm. right? In other words, correcting reality. And we end up eschewing other groups that might well have bits and pieces of objective reality in them that is very that could be very valuable to our solution set. But if we can't ever even perceive that other bubble or do nothing but lampoon it and cast stones and cast aspersions at it all day and say, well, they're the stupid people because they're in that bubble and we're the smart people because we're in this bubble. If that's where you're at on any subject, you're to that degree, incapable of critical thinking and incapable of objective thinking and incapable of actually solving the problems that you're part of that group to solve. And I think about this on the spectrums, of course, of politics, but I think this applies across the board. You know, the couch haters of America, if they really keep running around calling couches death machines, Mm -hmm. and that's all they ever do is talk about couches that way, the rest of the one, they're never going to solve the couch problem because couches aren't that, although couches could be improved. But they're not only, they're not trying to, at that point, they're not trying to get, trying to improve couches. They're just trying to eradicate them. This Scientology, trying to eradicate psychiatry. That's right. That's right. You know, it's the same. Which it's never going to do. I no, mean, it's so beyond, like, again, uh, I, I'll give you again an, another example because recently, um, you know, when I go to, college and university. And I I like the experience. I don't think, I mean, there are some troubling stuff on a college campus with free speech and stuff, but I will say a lot of that stuff that's coming from the right about how people on the right are being oppressed by the people on the left in campus. It's not really happening on a day-to-day basis. It happened in isolated incidences. But I do want to make the point that I had a TA last year, teaching assistant, sometimes called seminar leaders, depending on what country you're in. And every time this, this person would speak all, according to this person, all of the world's problems could be solved by the revolution. Right. That's what we need. We need the revolution, not a revolution. We need the revolution. And when this person would be speaking, they would be saying like, poverty is not going to exist after the revolution. Um, you know, this is not going to exist. And I put up my hand and I just said, okay, this was a history class. Okay. And I said, What about the counter-revolution? Because there are going to be people who don't agree with you. And in a lot of cases, and I brought up the case of a a woman named Rosa Luxemburg, who started a revolution uh, with a number of communists 
in Germany following the First World War. This, her goal and her group's goal was to make Germany, the new Weimar Republic, destroy the Weimar Republic and establish a communist nation. The people that they didn't anticipate were the counter-revolutionaries called the Freikorps. Many of them became Nazis. They had much better weapons. They had weapons. That was the first thing. They had guns. They had more people, and they were heavily, heavily supported, not only by the Weimar Republic, but by the Fatherland Party and other parties that were on the right. This is, to me, where there's a book by a conservative author called A Conflict of Visions named Thomas Sowell. Why I mention him is not because he's conservative, not because I think he's the greatest person, but because Steven Pinker wrote a book called The Blank Slate and used a lot of the same premise that Thomas Sowell did. And this is where it comes down to. It's a conflict of visions. When you believe on one side of the coin that everything that you believe is absolutely grateful and wonderful, and even if people disagree with you, it's somehow going to benefit them, there's always a second group, and even more than just a second group, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a tenth, a twentieth, who don't want to be a part of what you're selling. This is why we have democracy, because every four years, regardless of the fact, and again, I don't like Donald Trump, I don't think he's a great candidate, but you know what? Regardless, he still was elected. Again, I know electoral reform, I understand, I, I, I get it. But at the end of the day, he is still the president of the United States. So there's plenty of things that you can do to fight that, but he's still the president of the United States. The same way Rosa Luxemburg had this grand, beautiful, wonderful idea. She has wrote that it was going to be a revolution of love. She was brutally murdered by proto-fascists who didn't give a shit about love. They just wanted to suppress and end what other people thought was good because they believed that the more stronger nationalistic revolution, and they used the word revolution, was better. So we have a conflict of visions. Now, I understand these are extreme examples of the extreme right, the extreme left going at each other, and that in our day, it's more like, you know, people that are progressive against maybe people who are conservative, and it's not, I don't want to say violent, because there has been violence, you know, Charlottetown, Virginia, and so forth, one, one individual did die. But I do want to say that these conflict of visions, the unintended consequences of our, of our ideologies, we have to examine them. We have to say to ourselves, what if? What if it doesn't work? What if all of these well-meaning intentioned, what if they just don't produce the results that we want? What are we going to do? Are we going to double down? Or are we going to reform a little bit? What are we going to do when the things that we think will solve the world's problems doesn't do it and perhaps makes it worse? Now, for that, I'm usually called a cynic, I'm negative, I'm a pessimist. It's not. It's not. I'm not those things. I believe very much in hope. I, I, I believe things can get better, should get better. But I believe we have to do it in a very realistic way, not by changing the fabric and the core of society, but using what we have in society to make the world a better place. And I, I think I talked to you about this before, Chris. It's destinationism versus directionalism. There are some people that have like heaven in their head 
or they have a utopia in their head and there's nothing that you can do, they have to get to that perfect place which only exists in their head. That's a destinationist. A directionalist will say, let's take what we have and direct society through policies, through slow changes, and to make a better world. Now, I do believe that more people are directionalist, but the problem is it's the destinationists that can hold people back. And it's not a good way of thinking. Utopianism is not good. And every time you believe, who could, who could hate what I believe? You need to look at the other side because there are plenty of good arguments. Even if something is what you think is morally true and morally acceptable, right? There's still another side that good people are arguing against. And if you don't know what those arguments are, then you know, it's kind of a shame because good people can argue against your beliefs. It's completely okay. And not only can they, they will. Yeah. And the thing that, that and, the, and the reason this is important is because I have, I, I guess if I was going to have to choose, I'd say a directionalist. I, I, I would yeah. say I'm trying to push for, you know, method over destination. I don't, exactly. I don't have some utopian vision here. But I do believe that these factions bubbles you know these the the these uh these things are actually getting in our way in a in a in a in a way that even that the, it's, you know, i'm trying to appeal to the utopianists i'm trying to appeal to yeah. people who are these destinationalists here with this rhetoric right now and it's why i'm trying to cite examples that are not so hot topic mm-hmm. i could cite plenty right now because yeah. it's all over my social media feeds and I don't comment on a whole lot anymore. I'm hardly on Facebook at all. Twitter, I'm, I'm reducing my time even there because it's just bubbles fighting bubbles. And I'm trying to say, as somebody who has survived the deepest levels of an authoritarian mindset, that it's not healthy no matter where you're at what belief system you have, how good or righteous or wonderful you think you are, or how great you think your group is, there isn't a perfect one out there. There's no perfect system out there. There's no perfect destination out there. And this idyllic thinking, like your TA was talking about, of mm-hmm. once the revolution happens, everything will be wonderful. I, dude, I've been there, man. Yeah. And it's a facade. It's fake. It's not reality. And we've got to get a hold of ourselves and get over ourselves about this. And the only way I have to point to now, the only thing I have to point to is what's helping me through navigate all of this. And that is critical thinking. And that is Uh being contrarian on purpose. You know, if your side is so smart and so good and so intelligent and so right, challenge it. Mm -hmm. And not within your own little bubble. Go outside the bubble and challenge it. You know, that's the only way to, you know, you got to acid test your ideas. You got to, you got to stress test them. You got to put them out there and be willing to have the discussion. And that's the other aspect of this is that the discussion is not uh, my labels versus your labels. Mm -hmm. My name calling is better than your name calling. I swear to God, social media just brings out the third grader and everybody. And, you know, and unfortunately me too, because it's in us to come out. That's right. And I always say that, I always put that out there, that I'm not any better at this than anybody else, but I'm trying. And I'm, and, and as time goes on, I think I am getting better at it because 
you know, I, I don't have the social media on my phone anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just too goddamn addictive. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm not using it that much on even on my desktop anymore where I, where I sit and do my work all day. And I'm realizing just what a time suck it is, but also what a psychological mind fuck it can be because sure. it's the echo chamber effect. And we love echo chambers. And if there is one thing about social media that is, that is its downfall or its, or its dark side, it is the echo chamber. It's the ease with which echo chambers have been reinforced. We, you know, because now we can be in echo chambers with uh, the same believers in, you know, Burma and Bermuda Mm -hmm. and Bangladesh, as well as in Britain, you know, like, like all of them together now form the little Facebook groups or the websites or the YouTube channels or whatever. And so they take strength in numbers like the flat earthers, I'm sure, you know, everybody's like, why are the flat earthers growing? They're not growing. They're not growing. They've gotten together. Right. They're not communicating through stupid mimeographed newsletters anymore. They're communicating right. online, you know, on and so, Zoom, on Skype, exactly. Right. And everybody's yeah. like, "Oh my God, I didn't know they existed. Where they all come from?" Well, they were always there because yeah. flat Earth has been something that's been around since the 1800s. But yeah, it's evangelical, young Earth creationism. I mean, all these anti-vaxxers. It's the same crap. Like you're yeah. absolutely right. The the one thing that you know, I, I, I'm this person who I generally. I'm starting to become more skeptical of social media and obviously being a, a little bit younger, Chris, not to say that you're old or anything, but I am a little bit younger. Um, I'm old by the way, I'm getting up there, but um, you know, I, I got the internet when I was like in uh, junior in high school. So I had a whole, almost a whole life of doing research up until I was 16 or 17 years old without internet. So I still remember what it was like to use the Dewey decimal system and have to write you know, school essays and go to the library, get a little card and whatever. So, uh, but the kids you today, for library cards. Oh, I remember them. Yeah, but <laughs> the kids today, and I'm going to do a little old man shaking, uh, shaking his fist at the cloud. Um, they have not. They have been raised on social media, and so it's a different experience for them. And I find the willingness to go to a label, like I, and I'll give you this this personal anecdote. Okay, I'm not a conservative. But people in my university think that I am. The only evidence that they have is because when we talk about communism, I give my experience and it's a negative one. How people then consider me a conservative is so far beyond me that I, I just, I, I don't, I'm not. Like, I'm LGBTQ. I'm, you know, I, I could go over all this you know, um, uh, uh, what do they call it? The uh, self-serving bias. I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. Isn't it wonderful? I could go through that. But all I'm doing is saying, this is why communism isn't good. And I'm labeled a conservative. I, I, I might have voted for a conservative candidate one time, maybe two times. That's maybe what I'm guilty with. And that was a little bit of time ago. It's not the same today. I can move, I can change. But the bizarre idea that not liking communism and explaining why 100% or 90% collectivizing our property, collectivizing farming, the revolution is not a great idea. Yes, there are ideas in there that are good. We have, you know, public utilities are collectivized to benefit everybody. Good, but not supermarkets because just Google, just Google communist bread lines, which I experienced, that doesn't make me a conservative. And I have never said a positive statement like, oh, my name is Mark and I'm a conservative. Like, I've never said that. 
And yet I'm labeled as that. So professors and TAs look to me as the old conservative student. And I kind of have been taken on this role, like I'm the old cynical, cranky, you know, 30 year old who's telling all the kids that, you know, they're not ready for reality. And I play into that sometimes, but never out of my mouth have I ever said that I'm conservative because I'm not. And right. because, I, and because I, I, I'm simply not that thing. And that is a phenomenon that jump to con jumping to the worst case scenario. It's not jumping to a conclusion. You're just jumping to the worst case scenario is very much uh, an online phenomenon. Because when somebody says, I want my taxes lowered, you say, you're a Nazi. When somebody says, I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders, you say, you're a communist. That, these are false comparisons. You know, we can get into the logical fallacy arguments here. Red herring, straw man. You know. But the fact that it exists in reality, the fact that someone can say, I'm a, I don't believe in this thing, and then people automatically change that to you have to be a part of an identity that I don't like is very, very concerning. And that is the one thing that I've taken away from college and university that's non-academic is that culture has shifted to if you are not 100% listing what people want you to say, you are automatically part of a terrible group. And I will always say, I'm not a conservative. I know plenty of conservatives. I disagree with social conservatives. I used to be more fiscally conservative, which are two different things. I absolutely disagree with a lot of what they're saying, but I, I do not believe that they are saints nor demons because we none of us are. So even if I was a conservative and I was just saying communism is bad, I can still be right and I can still be wrong. I can still be right by saying communism is bad and giving those examples. And then I could say something that's conservative and it can be wrong. But the, the idea of nuance and just listening to what people say unfortunately has died and it has transitioned into reality from the internet. And again, my point being here, I find that very, very disturbing. Um, and that's what I've taken away. That's what I've taken away from my, from my college experience here in, in, you know, in Canada. And uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's definitely something that I find, you know, very disconcerting. Well, I think it's really just further commentary on what we've already been on the on the groundwork we've already laid here, because what we're talking about is, again, a perfect example of somebody not able to view objective reality because they're viewing things through the lens of the blob that they're in the middle of. That's right. And it distorts all the light. It distorts all the sound. And so what you're saying and how you're presenting yourself is not what they are perceiving or hearing or seeing in their own head they have and this has and this of course what you're talking about right now is is a further um outgrowth of the identity mm -hmm. politics or identity you know sociality where we have to we everything is framed in terms of identities you yes. are a fill in the blank yep and depending on the label and depending on how extreme the mindset I will either dismiss you entirely or I will accept you entirely based solely on this label. And, right. I'll, and okay, let's use the neutral example again, Scientology. Ex-Scientologists, right? This happens in all the ex-communities of ex-cult members who the only thing they really all have in common is that they were deep into this belief set. 
But once they come out, their individuality starts expressing itself again. That's and, right. And this is why X groups, members of X members of, you know, of, of groups, of cults, are almost destined to faction and tear themselves apart because oh. the individuality of every person is finally coming out and expressing itself. And you find that there are, in the ex-Scientology world, deep conservatives, deep yeah. liberals, right? Deep yep. libertarians. I mean, yeah. you find all of that expressed. Mm -hmm. You find patriots. You find uh, expats. You find um, people who love sports, people who hate sports, people mm -hmm. who love good food, people who love fast food. You love... You know, all the things that you find in society that, that is the spice of life, of variety, mm -hmm. you find in the X communities more and more and more as people get out of that collective cult mindset and start having the freedom of thought to think their own thoughts and, and think their own opinions and ideas about things. And of course, disagreements start happening in the community, mm -hmm. quote unquote, and the fights and wars and drama and all this crap happens that is you know when when if you if if you think as i mistakenly naively did when i first got out and for many many years thought that everybody in the x world is on the same page of let's take this group out or let's defang this group or let's do something effective about the abuses we suffered in this group what you find over time is that everybody's got different ideas about how to accomplish that. Yeah. And unless a leader arises and starts leading by example and demonstrating how to do it, i.e. Leah, Mike, yes. Rinder, right? Um, uh, even non-X members can, can, become, can rise to status in these groups, a la Alex Gibney or Lawrence Wright, who, who came up with Going Clear, both the book and documentary. That was, I mean, everybody got on board with that stuff, right? Or at mm -hmm. least a lot of people did. But even in the X community, not everybody did. Actually, I got to walk true. that back. There were plenty of people who were pissed off at Mike, pissed yeah. off at Leah, pissed off at Alex, thought Lawrence Wright missed the boat, you know? And so even there, you know, when, you, when you're trying to um, establish thought leaders or opinion leaders or leadership of some kind or even celebrities, you get all kinds of wild and crazy opinions on this. This is also rife in the atheist world. And, and it's really no yeah. different in the evangelical world. How many denominations? How many different ideas? How many God beliefs? How many different ideas about Jesus are there? And yet they're all Christians, quote unquote. Right? So really... May I add, uh, Chris, uh, yes. just, just a short comment. So schisms are inevitable. Number one, here in uh, the city where I live, there are like four atheist groups. They all were a schism of one. And when we talk about Protestantism, there are Protestant churches that are 98% identical. The 2% where they differ is music. There you go. Can so, you play an organ in church or not? 98% is the same. Do we play music or do we not play music? That's right. So you can have the differences can be it doesn't really see it doesn't really matter. And where yeah. I was the other point I wanted to make about that, that that, you know, I don't know, we have mob mentality, maybe we should call it blob mentality. 
I do like that movie, The Blob from 1986. It's right? a great movie. Right? It's a yeah, great, exactly. scary movie. Yeah, exactly. Grabs the exactly. kid from the, oh my God. And the kid goes and he's all deformed <laughs> anyway. But the guy gets the guy gets sucked into the sink. I love that. Yeah, that was kind of gross. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for reminding me of that image. Oh, I love those movies. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So moving right along. Um, <laughs> I want to remind I want to remind again about the distorted reality, mm. right? About the fa about the fact that facts start meaning something different. Um, that just because you have you know this is a you know uh, red aluminum can sitting on my desk here. No, it's not. It's a <laughs> you know it's it's the death machine. It's the it's the it's something else than what it just is. Right. It prevents curing or solving the problem because you're solving the wrong problem. If you can't right. identify the problem correctly, you will, you, you will only accidentally solve it if you solve it at all. So, the, the, you know, I want to reinforce this as we, as we maybe start moving towards wrapping this up now sure. that, that it, I'm pointing all of this out not to be critical of people I don't like or critical of groups. This is why I'm trying to be very general in this conversation about these things is because it doesn't matter what side you're on. If you mm -hmm. want to accomplish your goals, you gotta step out of that and you gotta take a broader look. And, you, and that starts with a willingness to engage in what I am gonna continue to call critical thinking. Mm -hmm. Being contrarian to your own belief set is a healthy, good, psychologically sound thing to do. It will benefit you in the long run, no matter what your belief set, no matter what your ideas or how utopian you might think they are. And they could be great. Yeah. They could be wonderful ideas. I, I, what I'm saying applies to, um, you know, the Red Cross as much as it applies to Scientologists, mm -hmm. right? Anybody can get to tunnel vision on their faction group orientation, cult, whatever. And when you and we do ourselves a disservice by doing that. And that's my appeal to the viewers out there, right? Is to is to is to broaden your horizons, look beyond your reality, look beyond what you think is true. Dare to look at opposition, dare to look at critics of your work or your ideas. Mm -hmm. Take some time to do that. Even if it's just a few minutes a day, you will find yourself in, you know, you will find yourself perhaps at first, depending on your mindset and how far down whatever rabbit hole you are, at first it will be very, very difficult. And some people who are watching this right now will think I am completely full of shit yeah. and that I'm absolutely wrong and there's no way that this is true. But I'm only sharing my own experience here and the benefits of my own experience and what I and what I have shared with others who agree with me and and Mark I've you know I'm really happy that we have found more agreement here today mm -hmm. on these things that we're talking about um, I I just feel like I need to say this and I'm trying to say it in a, in a very non-confrontational or mm -hmm. non-judgmental way because I'm also you know when I said at the beginning that I was talking about eating humble pie and acknowledging where I'm wrong I have been wrong on certain aspects of politics, of, you know, of authoritarianism, of some of the fears that I had four years ago when Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. I was wrong about some stuff. Now, yeah. 
I am not walking back. That's right. Anything that I said about that guy as an individual. Mm-hmm. I still hold every single position I've ever held on that. Yeah. But, you know, has the world ended? No, it hasn't. Are we all drastically, you know, like worse off? Well, we are because of COVID. Yep. That's for goddamn sure. Which you can't, you can blame Trump. Really who you can blame Trump in the public health sector, but you can't blame him for the virus. Exactly. You know I what I mean? You can blame him for his, for his yep. horrifyingly bad response. Exactly. Public health Definitely. issues, yes. Yeah. Definitely, right? But he did so, not create the virus. He's, no. He was not the first uh, carrier zero or whatever they call them. Yeah. Exactly. So, so you know, and, and I see so many things now. Well, let's just say that it's difficult to watch my friends buy into propaganda on the left and the right, mm-hmm. both, and watch this happening and feel powerless to say anything about it. Because if I throw a missile over in the left or I, I you know, drop a bomb on the right, I'm not listened to. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm argued with. And that's fine. Arguing is okay. I mean, countering, you know, that's cool. But it never has resulted. I've I've very rarely have I changed hearts and minds on social media. Yeah. (laughs) Which is why I really stopped trying because I realized it was a fool's errand and it was it was it was an exercise in futility. Yeah, it's the yelling into the void thing, which is also not productive at all. Exactly. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the reasons for that have to do with the things we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. And so instead, what I thought I would do is just throw an appeal out there to everybody to say, look, guys, I don't care which side you're on. If that's the only side you're ever listening to or paying attention to or contemplating the rightness of, you're denying yourself a view of objective reality, mm-hmm. which will give you the tools and the data and the, you know, the knowledge that you need to actually move the ball down the road of whatever cause you're working for. doesn't even matter what the cause is. That's right. Whatever cause you're trying to make happen or do or pull off, or even if you're not, even if you're a couch potato and you just, you know, you're just voting. Even looking past the, the rhetoric of your party and looking at the rhetoric of the other party is a valuable exercise. Yeah, read, read a website from another and read the platform. Because the thing is, instead of having someone say, oh, did you hear Democrat or Republican? They want this to happen. Like when people say, well, Bernie Sanders just wants to raise your taxes and steal your money, or all Republicans just want to end abortion. Yeah, some do, some don't. But you've got to read their words. You've got to go onto the websites. You've got to read exactly what they're saying. And yeah, you can still disagree. But at least you will know from their side what they think and it's it, it's just a way to undercut mis- misinformation exactly and if you think that you know and this is again not new with me not original with me what i'm preaching right now goes all the way back to john stuart mill yeah mm-hmm. and if you read on liberty which i will push just as hard as i push carl sagan's demon haunted world those are mm-hmm. the two for me those are foundational texts those yeah. are like core core solid sets of writings because they are generalized they are not partisan they are not super specific to any group or ideology they neither john stuart mill or carl sagan are ideologues they're not pushing a platform 
They are just saying, look, you should have the freedom to say whatever the hell you want. You should have the freedom to think whatever you want. And you should have a tool set that you use to engage in critical thinking so that the thinking you do gets you where you want to go. Absolutely. I can't see any negative to that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the basis of, of, of this podcast today. And I, I've, I know I've been energetic here today and I've been pretty passionate about this, but I, I, it's not, you know, the thing that, 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 that I, that keeps me up at night, the thing that, that makes me crazy about what's happening in the world today is the push, the, 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 the seeming drive, the intense, intense drive to race to the extremes yeah. <laughs> of viewpoints, you yeah. know, on all ends, uh, you know, it's a chaos symbol because it's all ends. It's not just two sides. I'm not just talking about politics. Yeah. It's a mindset that we are indoctrinating into people that extremism of any flavor is the right way to be. And I want to push back and I want to push back as hard as I can. Mm-hmm. and use my platform to to do that. I hope this has been interesting and maybe a little educational <laughs> and maybe a little informative and hopefully generic enough that I haven't offended the sensibilities of people who are just sometimes on a goddamn razor's edge these days mm-hmm. on this stuff to listen all the way through. And I hope that we've made some good points. Mark, I really want to thank you for helping me with this. Well, thank you too, Chris. I know again, we've had a couple of private conversations about stuff that I'm interested in and I, I love your content. I have been a fan at least since 2014, maybe not as soon as you left, but I do remember the day that I, uh, I believe your photo was on Tony's, uh, Tony's website when you officially kind of came out and they said, this is Chris Shelton. And you know, uh, as well as, as myself, you worked uh, at the Big Blue and the Big Blue is actually a big part of my experience as Scientology as is the city of Los Angeles. Just to give you a little note here, I did leave the church, decide to leave the church outside of Asho. So I was literally standing outside of Asho on the other side of the sidewalk and uh, I decided to leave. So anybody that has any experiences who's been to Los Angeles, live there, have some kind of experience there, I'm, I'm always grateful when I hear that they leave because I feel like there's some connection there as well. So thank you as well, Chris. I really, really appreciate you having me on. Awesome, man. Well, you, you've been great this time. And uh, I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, and folks out there, I'm uh, just going to end off here by saying, of course, that if you find um, that this show is worthy of some support and you want to see it continue, then I would implore you to please uh, help me out by joining me on Patreon. Um, the link is below, patreon.com slash Chris Shelton. It is in the description section of this video on YouTube and every video I have ever published. And of course, you can also show me some love with uh, one-offs through PayPal. Um, and that's really literally how I am continuing my existence. And, um, and it's been a wonderful existence. I am very happy with what I am doing. I love doing this and I want to continue doing it. So um, that is the way that will make that happen. All right. So that being said, I look forward to seeing you guys uh, at my Q&A show uh, tomorrow and on um, Critical Conversations, a live call-in show that I do right here with my wife on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock Mountain Standard Time. And maybe in the not too distant future, we'll consider switching that up to Saturdays to make it more accessible to people. 
Um, we were talking about that from the beginning, and now I'm sort of thinking through how I want to do that. But for now, it'll stay on Wednesday nights. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.